Hello and welcome to the Loose Spokes podcast. I am Randall. And I'm Roger. And this is David. And uh, this is a, it's a dirt bike show. Dirt bikes, motocross, supercross, um, all things with two wheels and an engine, really. Um, so, you know, uh, before we started recording, we were we were kind of bantering and, and I decided uh, we'll just bring it into the show. So, Roger, you recently actually sold one of your bikes. Uh, what, what was going on with that? Well, I had a 74-125 L store that I bought. <clears throat> we, a place where my wife had been keeping her horses, um, the husband of the lady that owns that, he had a, a 74-125 L store that he had done some vintage racing with. And he also had a, a MT-175, which is, that's a green tank uh, that was came out in 1975. And uh, anyway, he knew I had done some racing and stuff like that. And he asked me if I wanted to go race it. And I was like, sure. And so I took it up to uh, the vintage, local vintage races and hadn't raced a 125 Elsinore since ooh, probably 1977. And... Uh, Went up there and raced it, but my wife and daughter came up and watched and and uh, did good on it. I won the class with it that day. And but the funny thing that they kept saying is every time I went by there, I'm banging through gears, banging through gears. And I said all I could see was this giant smile on my face. <laughs> you know, much fun, but anyway, I had hoped to be able to restore that bike and you know back to its original glory because it had a red frame and a red plastic tank and everything like that it had a kind of a somewhat cheesy paint job on it and stuff but it ran good and uh i'd always hoped to do it but you know all these years later i just never was going to get around to it and then a buddy uh was looking for one and i said well i might have one and so it probably took six months for him for me to decide that okay i'm gonna let him have it so i sold it to him and and uh, he restored it, fully planned on racing it at the uh, Interam at Boise, Idaho this month, but that's not happening. So he's got it ready to go, and he's hoping to uh, be able to race that one day. But, you know, I'd sure like to have one, but I guess at this point in my life, the only way I'm going to have one is one that's done. Yes, I'm that guy that's not going to tinker enough with it, but it would be nice to have one. Honestly, bottom line, I'd rather have a 74 CR250 anyway. Hmm. I just think that would be better for me and my style. I've been an open class rider. Well, I bought an 81 CR450 when they came out, you know, and I've just loved riding open bikes ever since. Um, it just it just suits my style. I love the power. Not to say that I don't like 125s. I currently have an 04. That is, every time me or anybody gets off of it, it's the same three words. So much fun. <laughs> so much fun. Because you can just pin the throttle and bang gears, and, and then you kind of try to figure out how to rail turns, you know, with if you can rail the turn and keep it on the pipe. You know, it's just so much efficient. When you come out of the corner, you went all the way through the corner on the pipe, and you're just barely making the corner you got bikes laid way over you're just going Woo it's just way <laughs> so much fun so much fun but i just got my on that bike i just got the i got new handlebars grips 
and levers, and then I have a complete restyle kit for it. I know the restyle kits are somewhat controversial. I'm not going to get rid of all my OEM stuff, but uh, it's getting harder to get the OEM stuff. So if I scratch up a restyle kit, not as big of a deal. But that bike this weekend is going to get the complete restoration on it. I've been kind of loaning it out to people that either their bike was broken or they don't have a motorcycle and they're learning how to Or they're visiting you down in California. Yeah, exactly. All of that. It's been ridden by other people way more than me for the last two years. And I'm going to get, I guess I'm going to get selfish for a little while. I'm going to get it all gone through this weekend. I finally have all the parts compiled, um, except for new tires. We'll put new tires on it next. I've got time before we're going to be riding, but get that thing all restored and go out there and I'll start saying so much fun again. <laughs> what, what, so you're, are you saying that the, is it the gearing and the stuff that's so much different on the Elsinore from the CR? Well, it's technology between 74 and 04. Wow. I mean, you're going from. Oh, uh, I thought I heard you say 84. I have a, a that Randy has an 84. I might have said 84 because I think about that bike too. No, I have a, I have a 2004. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have. Yeah, a yeah there's nothing the same on that. <laughs> no, no, no. But there's, <laughs> but they're all still fun. Even the 84 is a lot of fun, and it's a big difference between the 74 to 84. And I would mm-hmm. say there's less of a difference between the 84 and the 04. <clears throat> Yeah, I would agree. I've I've ridden all three of them, and and yeah, I would say that it it's probably about that. The because I could ride the eighty four and I could ride the 04, but that seventy four, that was a chore. I did about six laps, and I just I wanted to go lay down. It it's scary. It takes a lot. They're intense to ride. It takes a lot of input. It's like. 24 millimeter front forks on it. Tiny tubes. 32 inch seat height and 21 horsepower. You know, when <laughs> you jump up to the 84, you got a 37 inch seat height and probably, you think about this, 32 horsepower maybe. It's like a TTR 110 with a rocket strap to it. <laughs> and, what's the, and the rear suspension travels like six inches or something? Four. Well, it should be four, but as I remember, those shocks were blown out. Then it gets four real quick. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) It doesn't feel like four. (laughs) You know what? It was still super fun to ride. I I don't think I'll get another CR125, but the right opportunity for a CR250 came up. That would be fun because they're super quick um quick revving they just got a little button mag in the engine where it just there's no flywheel effect whatsoever and they're just super cool and they pull you know i think that i think that the uh 74 cr 250s had around 32 horsepower which is close to what that 84 125 has something to think about in 10 years wow so um have you been watching cole seeley Riding his 73 Elsinore out in the desert? Yeah, I saw that. No. It really looks like uh, Ocotillo. 
Uh, it, li- it likely is, you know, yeah. Southern California, everyone loves Ocotillo Wells, but I thought it was funny you were talking about the, you know, the 74 Elsinore, and, and I've been watching Cole Seeley on Instagram riding and making a video with the 73, and I'm going, man, I remember what it's like to ride that, and just watching him uh, pop wheelies and hold it at 12 o'clock all the way down, you know, down a trail, I'm like, no way. Like, yeah. you forget how good these riders are. Yeah, oh, yeah at just riding anything anywhere it you know they're they're better than everyone else it's not just at a professional level but even when they just mess around they do it at such a high level and that that's the r250 is low and long it's got like a 31 32 inch seat height and a 57 inch wheelbase well i'm pretty sure my 450's got a 57 inch wheelbase so you know your, your center of gravity is so low and compared to a new bike so the wheelium is a chore in comparison and a light switch power band that makes it even hard too but yeah exactly there's there's no there's no smoothness to it as no. rough as you think a new bike may be yeah. those old ones you're off the power and then and it's only at the very very bit of a rev range maybe it was just your 125 but boy howdy that was a really narrow band Oh, it was a very narrow band. I think my 125 wouldn't turn any more than 9,500 RPM. My 76 would turn 11,000 RPM, and that made it way easier to ride. Yeah, those early ones didn't turn a lot of RPM, so yeah, the power band was probably, oh boy, it could have been eight or 900 RPM. I mean, oh, wow. the width of it, the width of it. You know, oh, oh, so you get, I see, at the very top of the, yeah. geez. It could be like 7,600 RPMs to, to 8,000 RPMs. I mean, it can be that narrow um, <laughs> on them. So you just, it, it's like a light switch. And that's why they were six speed and they called them close ratio because the ratios didn't change much because the power band was so narrow. Well, yeah, you had to stack them right on top of each other. So you just basically slip the heck of it until you get up to the high RPM and then you're just shifting gears all day long, huh? Shift gears, yep, yep, and clutching it out of corners. I remember when we bought our 125 Elsinores, we'd we'd race them up and down the road, and every gear sounded the same. It would go, noot, 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 noot. didn't matter if it was first to second or fifth to sixth. They all sounded the same. It was just weird, you know, what gear is he in? I don't know, I wasn't counting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because nowadays it's do 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 yeah, made it longer it back then and just didn't yeah yeah but anyway they had to do that just to be able to stay on that power band hmm. fun times but no more rebuilds for you huh not i'm not going to do a major restoration i just don't have the time and energy for that i mean what i'm doing with my old four this weekend it'll probably take me Oh, four hours. You know, I can do that. Um, yeah. But I, don't, I guess I don't need to tinker all the time. More of a freshening up than a than a ground up uh, rebuild. Because you had that bike for a few years and it just didn't, wasn't important enough. You'd rather tinker on four bikes than yeah. do a ground up on another one. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That was fun, kind of why it got left out. You know, the, the fun... Fun factor was there, but, you know, also, you know, you get out on something like that and, man, you don't want to break it. <laughs> Hard to hmm. find parts. Hmm. 
Hold that, it's an 04125 or 250? My my bike I have now is a 04125. Oh, okay. Yeah, but and really there, the part the parts are hard to come by, huh? Not, not on the 04, but the 74. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 74. The 04 is is uh starting to get there um on on for OEM, yeah, for official Yeah. Yeah, well, heck, my uh my 2014 I had to buy a 2016 rear fender because the 14 fenders and the 15 fenders are all gone. Even though it's the same part, it apparently doesn't carry the same part number, but huh. fit on there just fine. So yeah, even, even that, you know, a lot of the plastics, they go away. Of course, open bikes, rear fenders going away. Of course that makes sense. Wheeling <laughs> <laughs> them over backwards and ripping them off. I don't think I've ever done that. You've never ripped your rear fender off? No, I don't think I have. I broke, the only time my rear fender got broke was uh, <clears throat> at Washougal in the first turn. I I was winning the first turn and I was like in second place and some guy just hammered me from behind. And it, when he hammered me from behind, it flipped me over and then a guy ran over my bike my 78 CR250 and broke the rear fender on. That's oh. the only time I've ever had a rear fender break. Now I'm thinking it through. Yeah, and that doesn't really count. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I didn't do it. <laughs> no, you didn't break it. They did. Yeah, yeah I, I've never broke one, but I fold my Cannondale's rear fender straight up, and that was from, you can guess what, trying to figure out how to do wheelies. <laughs> and, uh, yep, sure enough, man, just – just made the thing point ninety degrees. <laughs> oh man! It was uh, it, a funny thing is that thing folded back down really well. It, it creased it. It had a white mark across the gray, uh -huh. but uh, it's it still it still was in the right place. So I I left it there for until uh, yep. that was the one with the light. I I took that one off and replaced it with one without a light. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was uh, yeah. I'm really not good at wheelies. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on the bike for me. Remember when I got my uh, 82 480, all of a sudden I could wheelie that thing. Huh. <laughs> in fact, I may or may have not gotten in trouble wheeling up gravel roads with uh, mom on the back. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> she wasn't expecting that, I take it. Oh, no, she, she did, and she probably didn't like it, but. <laughs> I think she just sat back there and had tears running out of her eyes. I don't know if that was the speed or the scared part. <laughs> oh, my. But we're still married, so it wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, that's good. And we're oh, that's married. right. I forgot about that because you guys met in, what is it, 82 or 83? 80, in 83, but I didn't get a bike until 86. So Okay. All right. And yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. I only knew about your Sunbeam when you guys first met. I didn't know you were riding dirt bikes till later. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know how much of a fool I really was. <laughs> no, I really didn't. I mean, because I met you, and then we moved to uh, Indiana, and mm -hmm. then I came back to, and I lived with you guys that, that year mm -hmm. when I came back, and that was the first time I really knew you were a dirt biker. And I, I don't think I really understood how much of a dirt biker you were even then until it, it was a while later. So it's kind of yeah. funny. 
It's definitely been in my blood for years and years and years. So here's a great Honda story that's related to you. So that Sunbeam, of course, that I uh, ended up buying from you and then wrecking mm -hmm. before I wrecked it. Um, you remember the Honda sticker you had in the in the window, the rear window? Yep. I had so many people come by and ask me what year Honda that was. <laughs> oh, did you really? Yes. Oh, I never asked that question now. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I don't know how many. I'm not five or six. I don't remember oh, how many. No. But this was back in the, the I, I don't know. I, I ended up going back cruising uh, 82nd Division. I mean, this was, I was several years out of high school. I, I was, I don't know what I was doing. I was an idiot. But anyway, so I'm here like, what was I, probably 22 now, 21, cruising 82nd Street in a Sunbeam Alpine with a Honda sticker on it. <laughs> and I kept getting questions about what, what your Honda that was. Anyway, oh, maybe they were kidding, but <laughs> I don't think the Sunbeam logo was very well known. <laughs> no, that probably still isn't. You know, yeah. two, uh, three weeks ago now, it was a nice day here, and I was coming home from work on a weekend day, and right down by my house down here, here comes a guy down with a Sunbeam Alpine. No way. Yeah, it was kind of light blue. I didn't really like the color, but I I waved to the guy, and he waved back because I was like, no way. But yeah, That's awesome. I haven't seen one on the road in a long time, and it was all there. It was a good car. It was really, really, very nice. Mm. Yeah. Well, that guy that ended up buying uh, that one, I, you know, because I kept it for ten years and then finally sold it, mm -hmm. and uh, he, he rebuilt it with his dad. I never got to see the thing, but he he did. They did. They stripped it down and rebuilt it. Oh wow! So, so it could still be alive then. It's it's very likely out there. Yeah, well, maybe that's what you saw. Yeah, that's possible. Uh, but I, I don't want it back, by the way. But I feel like <laughs> <laughs> if if I I would I would do a rest of mod one, but not. Mm. A, mm. Uh, we need to be on garage nights right now, don't we, Randy? Yeah, that would. We, yeah, we'll definitely have to do a, a crossover episode onto the automotive show for the the Sunbeam because you put a Volvo engine in that thing and like doubled the power out of it. It did. It went from 67 to 122 horsepower. No wonder it got wrecked by uh, by some kid. Yeah. Well, I wish that was the reason. <laughs> At least then it would have been having fun with it, but I'm afraid it wasn't that reason. <laughs> it was the real rubber in the brakes. It didn't have <laughs> synthetic rubber. It had real rubber. Oh, natural rubber and it, it degraded. and Degraded, yep. You had to pump the brakes, man, and it just was needed to rest a mod, but it, it probably got that. Mm, probably. If they, if they restored it, because that was that was a weak spot in those uh in those cars. And any of the British cars, they all had that same brake system in them. Mm -hmm. With a leather all band natural. piston. <clears throat> that leather band around the air piston and then natural rubber in the brakes. We replace that stuff every few months. Oh my gosh! Horrible, just horrible. <clears throat> Along those same lines, uh, I saw a picture uh, the other day, um, and it made me made me think of the of the topic of uh, you know 
you used to haul around classic bikes, but they weren't classic at the time. They were just bikes. Yes. Um, and I was thinking, you know, what was what was the popular, you know, truck bike combo that you would see, or what was what was kind of known for that? Because I saw a Ford ad the other day that had um, that had you know was talking about you know, dirt bikes in the back of their trucks. And I've seen a lot of Toyota four by four ads, uh, you know, just classic ads from the seventies and eighties showing, you know, bikes in the back. And of course there's the Yamaha, um, you know, all of those ads, like what was, was everyone driving around, you know, first gen Toyota pickups or was it mostly like Cheyenne Chevys? Like what was kind of the, it was the chosen weapon, the vans. The econ oh, line, yeah. econ line one hundred. That was the choice. Really? Yeah, like eighty percent of them drove the econ lines. Um, wow. Um, some of them drove the Chevy, and the, some drove the Dodge. Occasionally, the, oh, then you'd see a you know Volkswagen Bug with a with a two rail uh, motorcycle trailer behind it. You know, people that were desperate. But yeah, they. Econ, white econ line vans were everywhere. When you go to, to you know, when we did a Fox Hollow in 1975, you know, it was just all econ line vans. Or, you know, then there was a smattering of, you know, uh, F100s and C10s and stuff like that. There was some of that, but the van was the most popular thing to have. Because Tony Blazer is the one who put up on, on Instagram. He's He puts up a lot of good classic stuff. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, it's a Ford ad and right in the center is a Ford courier, uh, is from 1976 and it's got a, it's got a couple of, couple of bikes, kind of, kind of too small of a picture for me to see, uh, blue one on the right almost looks like a Hodaka because the tank looks a little angular, but, um, just old, you know, in the background, there's a, there's a guy doing a big wheelie up the back and Ford pickups haul it your way. So I was wondering how much of that was, you know, uh, they show like a 76, uh, F 100, uh, step side. You know, I was wondering how many of that was, you know, true to those ads, but it sounds like they should have been just trying to sell vans. <laughs> um, yeah, they were trying to get them on other stuff. Um, I'm, trying to find that that um tony blazer yeah he's he's uh he's pretty pretty well known he he puts up a lot of classic pictures of uh of stuff it's where i found out about a, a lot of the stuff about my 86 uh it's kind of my way to dip into moto history from time to time but uh Is it on instagram yeah but uh, a lot of people have been dipping into moto history with the races not, you know, currently happening. There's there's a ton of clips being posted from past uh, past races, especially with the um, gold app opened up to everyone right now. Oh yeah, a lot of people are going back. Um, you know, Racer X is doing uh, watch uh, parties on Saturdays on Facebook. Uh, and they're doing the 250s now this weekend. Um, 
but I've seen a lot of people going back and pulling up stuff from the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. Also, uh, you know, most of the websites are posting about, you know, um, Reed Stewart stuff and, and all the way back to Jeff Ward. Um, and so it, it's kind of neat to see the whole industry start talking about what, you know, you guys live through to different extents and, you know, what I've been, you know, dipping my toe into, which is the, the history of the sport, which is completely different racing. I mean, you go five or six years from series to series and it's completely different tracks, completely different racing, completely different styles. It, it is, you know, I watched, um, <clears throat> I watched some stuff from the mid eighties. I watched it today and I can't remember who was in it, but, um, it was interesting to watch these guys go over. They were racing outdoors and it was interesting to watch them go over the jump and not scrub. I think it was Bradshaw had gotten a whole shot and he was being chased by Stanton. But these guys, they are the miles per hour that they're traveling now compared to then is just a huge difference because of the scrubbing and the momentum and, and how they pull out of the corners and everything like that. It's just, just amazing. This, the miles per hour, I guess that's the only way I can explain the difference is the speed they're traveling, you know, over the jump and they don't sail off the jumps, man. They scrub and boom, they're back on the ground really quick instead of just waiting to get down and hit down and go. The technology is just amazingly different. Mm-hmm. Supercross is the same way when you watch old clips. Uh, they're just, they're crawling through everything and, every, you know, the jumps don't look like they're designed for you to find a rhythm through them. They're literally, they just build obstacles, which is what they're still called. But back then you look at the track design and they literally just put mounds of dirt to keep you from going anywhere. Like they they were, it was more like enduro cross than super cross, even, even through the nineties. You know, you got a point there. It is more like enduro cross. They're not hopping over logs. It's dirt, but, but the pace and the miles per hour, you're right, it's probably not too far off. And it's full of two strokes. <laughs> and it's full of two strokes. I found one. So David, I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure when you started, you know, following the sport, you know, to a higher degree, but you know, what what's kind of the first season you remember, you know, watching wire to wire and being invested in? Um nineteen seventy five. That's when you were, you were 75. Okay. 1975. Uh, when Marty Smith, uh, started coming on the scene and I'm heck, he was racing five, number five twenty two back when he did, but he was the first one twenty five national champion. Um, that's kind of when I started paying attention at that time, but it didn't pay too much attention to the two fifty and open because that was kind of way over my head. How about you, David? I was just trying to remember. So it was before wedding number one. So it would have been either 87 or 88. Uh, and I, so that's going to be kind of the beginning of the McGrath era, if I remember right. In fact, was it 87 McGrath, 125? McGrath camp? was 91. Oh, for 125? Yeah, yeah, that was the Spitfire. That was a Spitfire bike, right? 
Spitfire bike. He was number 125 that year. 86-87 is going to be um, – that's that's going to be when Honda was winning absolutely everything. Everything. Ward Bailey era. Stan- yep. Oh, yeah. Stanton was 89-90-91. Okay. But that was when that was when Bailey – because Bailey won in 86. Yeah. 87, I think, too. I think the 87 was the year he got hurt. Okay, then it wasn't that soon because I don't remember actually watching them uh, live races. I re- but I do remember watching McGrath. So I must not have started really watching until. So I guess that would have been after I moved to Portland. Uh, so that would have been in 80, 90, 92. So 92, 93 would have been when I started watching then. Yeah, and that's when McGrath was starting to take over. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I know it was right at the beginning of his his uh, his championship runs that that I started watching. I remember watching him um, ride his rookie race, his one rookie, the one the year he ran a single Supercross race. If I remember right, it was just one race he ran uh, in the big class, the premier class. Uh, uh, he was still racing one twenty fives, and he ran one two fifty race that year. This was um um. Rick Johnson or McGrath? McGrath. So, yeah, he raced the 125s his first year in 91. Okay. And he won the championship that year. And I don't know that he raced the 250 at all that year or not, but I know when he came on the 250s, um, that that's when he really started. And that would have been that would have been 93, right? Yeah. So 92. So it was a, I think I started watching 92 because I remember it was McGrath that one, one off race he did in the 250 class where he literally got a work spike for one race. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Wow. That was, that was that. Yeah. So that was when I started, I never did get to watch the, uh, the Stanton era and the Bailey and Ricky okay. Johnson eras. I, I, I got to watch Ricky Johnson get beat. That's what I got to watch. <laughs> <laughs> But I think that was after he busted his wrist, though, right? I think right, he had already. Right. Yeah. Yep. yep. And that was 89. Yeah. So, Randy, I found this this Tony Blazer thing you're talking about where it's got a yellow uh, Ford Courier. And then it's got like yes. a 53 Ford in the background. So, the bike in the back of the truck is a, is a 1976 YZ125C. Okay. X had the canisters on it. The C just had the fork extension sticking up. And then the other bike sitting next to it is a Penton. Well, that's a Penton. Okay. You know, I intend to do a, a, a bonus episode about the Pentons because that's such an interesting story. Yeah, that uh, was a good Jack story. Penton, Jack Penton, he, uh, he uh, uh, was the uh, importer. And they were, it was a KTM. They were KTMs, yep. Yep, and I'm, I think a Pook was a KTM as well. I th- I think there's a, a a really good documentary that came out a number of years ago about it, and uh, I'll I'll link to that in this episode and also uh, when we do a, a longer forum about it. But that's really useful information that you have in your head to be able to look at that old Instagram picture and and of that poster and know exactly what bikes <laughs> they are and all those facts about them. That's really important. That if, you know I, that. if I'm playing who wants to be the millionaire, yes, it's useful. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, it just clutters my mind. Yeah, I don't know. It's really good for uh, 
beer conversations around the the, the supercross break. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when you when you go to the supercross races and you go back there to the lines of vintage, vintage bikes. You got to have a fun time though, getting into conversations with those boys back there. Cause, oh yeah. Wow. Yeah, because I because you could share a lot of that story. I just sit there and I listen to them. There's nothing I can share in those stories, but that, yeah, that's got to be a fun place. Wait till you're old, and you'll be able to share in those stories. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My eighty, my eighty six Honda uh, Yamaha IT two hundred. That's a yeah. that's hopefully one of them will be sitting there. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I don't know. I just I took a liking to this stuff, and I guess that would be like probably 72 and just mm. some things were starting here mm. yeah you you kind of got in you were oh dad you were a moto hipster is what you were <laughs> Ooh. But i, didn't I have, like it i didn't have a big beard and slick back hair though oh, yeah uh, you well, had long curly hair i hate to tell you that i've seen those pictures well, i was a moto hippie yeah it's just me That'll work. That'll work. Yeah. Well, you were you were there before it was cool. <laughs> you know, when you think I, about I it, I used to have to wait for the for the magazine to come out every two months to know what happened in the season. It did. You did. <laughs> yeah. Cycle news was was when it became you could find out the same week. Mm, yeah. Right. And and now people complain when there's a twenty minute delay for yeah. NASCAR. Yeah. <laughs> That kind of actually uh, dovetails in nicely because that's kind of when I started watching full seasons was when they, you know, became at least mostly live um, to watch. It just made it way more available. And of course, with uh, DVR made that a lot easier, too, because, you know, uh, you know, when I started following was about 2014, but. You know, there was no DVR, there was no streaming. Nope. So if I did anything else on Saturday night, I didn't get to watch it. So I had to follow, you know, on the early website on my phone. You know, by 2014, that kind of stuff was around. But um, really, now's the best time to get into the sport because you can get the the gold app. You know, it's not a plug. We don't make any money off of that. But that's legitimately the best way to get the sport is just buy the app and then stream it to your TV because then you can get to access to anything whenever. And, you know, if you have a plan on Saturday night, just don't get on any social media until you watch it. And it's as good as, you know, watching it live. You don't have to just read about it on Monday. That's how I handle it. If I can't watch it because something's going on and I don't, if something's going to go on, I don't have to say, well, gee, I can't go. The races are on. Mm-hmm. You can still have a life. Gives you that flexibility that you can be 100% behind the sport while also being free to live your life. Yeah. Yeah, I do I do the gold for American, and I do the uh, – what's that one you can do to get the GPs and the, the MX uh, Motocross Nations? MXGP. Yeah, MXGP.com. So I, I do both those two so I can watch the whole year. I just – I just, I, I love to have the option. I, I use, I got cable, so I, I can watch all the Supercross anyway on, on the NBC Sports, but uh, I, I still watch them online through the NBC Gold anyway. But yeah, I, 
I am all, I'm all, I'm a big believer on online. <laughs> it's just nothing like being able to have them accessible at any time for ad fitinum past years. I do wish they would start getting the, the old ones converted, but you know, I think that there aren't any good recordings of the old ones. I don't they know. They usually you... throw live sports away. Like they usually don't keep them. Not a lot of people keep them because, you know, you got to think for, for Fox or, you know, whoever was, was keeping all of that archived, they're not going to keep that much around because if they do that for all the sports, they got to have a warehouse for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can read all the time about, you know, the original prints of like Gone with the Wind were recorded on film. So they could be up converted past 8K technically because they're film. Yeah. Um, so all of this stuff can be, you know, could could be up converted very easily, but it all like, oh, that went in the warehouse fire of 33 or <laughs> or, oh, we purged everything older than 1960 because they would literally have to keep them in uh, climate controlled rooms. I know this as a fact from um, uh, the Henson company. I listened to an interview uh, about the Jim Henson company and they had all sorts of, of things that you know, just had to go because eventually things get moldy. They just, you know, film goes bad. It's cellulose. Um, so a lot of this old film from the 70s and 80s races that does exist, unless they saved it a long time ago, it's probably too late. Mm-hmm. I, that's what seems to be seen. All these old ones, like, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen them on YouTube that somebody will be out there and converts them. They're sketchy. I mean, trying to like actually see the numbers on the number plates when they're going across the it's they're really bad. And I, I wish so much. I had, I had, I don't know, 150 VHS tapes of every single race that I watched for, I don't know, 10 years straight oh, wow. um, before it all started going digital. I had those for a long time. And then for some stupid reason, I tossed them one year. And I, I shoot myself every time I remember it. <laughs> I just, I wish so much I had kept them. And of course, I don't know if they would have converted well because that magnetic media dies so quickly. But I don't know. I just, I do wish that somebody had decent copies of those old races. It's just a shame. Yeah, like we mentioned Tony Blazer. He's a moto archivist. Like that's what he does. He spends his days, you know, people will send him stuff even. He's got old magazines and he's got uh you know old tapes like that and it's people like him that are trying to keep the uh you know keep the the past of it alive but mm. you know you can't hoard everything you can but mm. you know yeah luckily there's at least some clips and you know maybe it's best that it's relegated to best of clips you know submitted to your phone from time to time because uh, maybe sitting down and trying to watch a whole you know, 1987 Maine might not be as exciting, you know, for the entire 20 laps uh, as it is to watch kind of highlights. Let someone else do the legwork. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a, uh, <clears throat> about a month ago, I saw this uh, video of a, it was a scrambles in about 1968, somewhere in Europe. It was actually, the resolution was really good on it. That's because it's it's taken on film, you know, and yeah. film film captures it's just light going on to a, a physical medium. Mm-hmm. There's no resolution. There's no lines Mm-mm. 
there's no tracking like that doesn't exist those are you know problems that we put in when we convert it to whatever is the best at the time but if it's film it's just a photograph yeah. So as good as the lens is, is as good as it's going to get, you know, the lens and the film. The colors didn't pop like they normally would if you were really there. But otherwise, I mean, you can see the details of the motorcycles as they're ripping by and the dirt and the roost and how rough the track really looked and everything. It was really neat. And we'll always have on any Sunday, so. <laughs> yeah, that one they've kept a good recording of. my my favorite my favorite bit is um i think it's on any sunday too is that the one that they do the kind of cheesy like they're pretending to change channels sort of a thing um and they they show they show a scramble race and the the announcers are maybe my favorite part of the whole scene because they're they're talking about this highlight clip of, of this race with all these Makos and, and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, all these British bikes mostly. Um, and they said, uh, and there's the Japanese team out with their Yamahas. Oh yeah. And then, <laughs> a, a, few, a few minutes, uh, later, like you see the bikes broken said, Oh, there's that Yamaha out of the race. I don't think we'll be seeing them again anytime soon. Yeah, that's the regular and, Sunday. Yeah, and then you know, of course, the you know the Japanese bikes dominate you know the the whole sport. Not much, not much after that. So it's yeah. just funny to look back and see, you know, how things were, and it's like, oh, this is an interesting idea. These single cylinder, you know, Japanese bikes—they're completely different. See if they can compete to. 10 years later, that's all there was. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was between 72 and 80. You know, the, the Makos and the, and the uh, CZs uh, held on till the early 80s. I think Mako went out in the mid 80s. Boltaco went out in about 81, 82. You but know, they weren't dominant anymore. No, they weren't. I mean, they held but, on, but the Japanese did did take it over in the seventies, them up, even the early seventies. Yep. It really took three to five years, and and it went from not in the game to running the game. Yeah. for those bikes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's yeah. just interesting how swift that was. It was actually about nineteen sixty eight that uh, that's when Honda first started trying to develop a two stroke, and. Uh, course yamaha they had two strokes back to 66 i think but the the dt1 came out in 67 or 68 that was a 250 enduro that they would make into like that that's what that guy was on that was on the yamaha was a it was a dt1 mm-hmm. 250 enduro that was being converted yeah, that was funny. That really started the arms race. Uh, I did some research the other day for a, a short clip I want to do about um, the Harley Davidson effort. Oh yeah, and that and that's really what drove Harley Davidson into shortly into the sport um, uh, with the uh, the Italian built Baja One Hundred, mm-hmm. and then later the uh, ill fated uh, rear forked uh, Two Fifty. Um, but yeah, that's actually what drew them in was seeing the DT one. 
Uh, and so they bought the the Italian manufacturer and uh, started, you know, importing their Baja 100, which actually won competitions yeah. in its time. Yeah, the Baja the 100 did, yes. And, and yeah. wasn't that uh, uh, the Italia jet? Yeah, it, it was a it was an uh, airline like a like a plane building company. I forget the the term for it, but um, yeah, I think it's Italia Jet. No, no, no. Company that they bought. It's Italia uh, uh, motorcycles. Aramachi. Oh, Aramachi. <laughs> yep. So that's what that's who they bought was Aramachi. So okay. Yeah. Well, so Italia Jet then. Tell you what, this this is a good a time as any uh, to do this. I I did some research uh, because I I it may have been on the previous episode. I, I mentioned um, Harley Davidson having the the forks on the back of their SX two hundred and fifty. Um, so I looked more into it, and so uh, Harley Davidson bought Aramachi, and they had been an airline manufacturer since nineteen twelve. Oh wow! Uh, most most of what they had done was they built military planes for the Italian military. Um, so in 1912, that's not great news. Um, but after World War II, they started making cheap motorcycles for commuting purposes in the in the 50s. Um, Did they make small regular motorcycles? They were they were making cheap small motorcycles hmm. uh, for commuting purposes in the 50s. So in 1960. Harley Davidson bought fifty percent of the motorcycle division in nineteen sixty. Uh, in nineteen sixty, and they called it Aramachi Harley Davidson. Uh, so, uh, after that, uh, AMF Harley Davidson, you know the bowling company right. and right. the uh, automaker, um, bought the remainder in seventy four. Then that was sold to. Uh, Kagiva, which is an Italian motorcycle company, so, uh, just a few years right. later in 1978. And, and Kajiva is still going today. Yeah, uh, they did close down the Aramachi stuff, I think, in 12 or 14. Oh, but, okay. Um, so they, they bought initially half of it in 1960. Uh, and then um, they, uh, they sold the Baja 100 um, unless I've got my numbers, I might have my numbers wrong here. It was a Baja 100. That's correct. And they would have sold that from 19, starting in 1960 or starting in 1970? 70. So it would have been 1970 to 1973. Yep. That was a 98cc single cylinder, two stroke. Correct. Uh, it's a square bore, nine and a half to one compression, 12 horsepower, five speed. And it had the proper 2118 wheels, mm-hmm. which is kind of what surprised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so most of the bike, except for the frame, was built from uh, uh, Aleta and Aleta de Oro shelf parts, like bikes they already made, mm-hmm. that uh, Aramachi already made. They just had to make the frame a little bit different for the kind of Harley modified engine. Um and yeah, it won the Baja 1000 in 1971. Imagine riding 1,000 miles on the dirt on a 100. <laughs> One built in 1970. Could you imagine an engine that would last that long? Well, I mean, this is what we talk about when we talk about, like, you know, what's a good bike for someone for their first bike? Tell them to get 
you know, an air-cooled trail bike because they're bomb-proof. Mm. Yeah. And this is kind of where that came from. They entered 14, 14 of them in a 1,000-mile Baja race. Eight of them finished in the top 10. No wow. kidding. Eight of them. And they, and they won, you know, on top of that. You know, you put enough bikes out there. I can't um, that reliability to go that far. Yeah, and that many of them to make it that far in that good a position. That's that's amazing. I didn't find any information on how many, you know, failed out and how many broke, but uh, still really, really good. That is, that's amazing. Um, so the the real story, though, comes in their, in their weird bike that they did later. Um, so after the success with the 100, uh, they... Uh, Aramachi had gone road racing at that point in the 250 and 350 division uh, and had found some success. And so in 1968, Yamaha released the DT1 that we were speaking of. Yep. And huge critical success, right? Like those were everywhere. Yeah. Um, So Harley Davidson started off by offering a scrambler version of Aramachi's Rapido, which was a 125. Right. But it was just that. It was a scrambler at best. It was just a high pipe and that sort of thing. Um, and then in 73, uh, they had the SX125, which was better. Um, this is but the they Aramachi. really. This is Aramachi? Th- well, this is Harley Davidson, but it was based off of the Rapido. Okay. So this is um a harley davidson and in 73 they had the sx125 then in 74 that's when you had the harley davidson sx175 and sx250 those were the ones that that had some staying power they were actually competitive Hmm. um so the 250 especially it was a 250 single cylinder air-cooled two-stroke five-speed perfectly along with everything else and it used 32 millimeter uh, Delorto carburetors. Right. If I'm saying that right. Yeah, Delorto, yep. It's Italian. Um, so it had uh, Serini style front forks Serrani. and a swing arm in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things is that the wheels were 19 in the front, 18 in the back. This is the SX250 had a 19. This is the SX250. So it was 1918 wheel size, which that's that's not standard for 1974 even. No, not on a full-size motorcycle. You know, not that in 74, they didn't really have the 2118 solidly down. Um, well, I don't know. But the CR250 had it then. Um, Makos and, and CZs, they were all 1821s. Okay, so they were, they were a little behind the curve on that. Yeah. Uh, they were pretty proud of their... The ignition was independent of the battery, so it did have a battery, but you could still uh, kickstart it, and the stator had no no effect on it, so you were never stranded. That's called a magneto ignition. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the swing arm had the people are going to be familiar with the snail cam adjusters for alignment. Right. Like like. And they did that. Like David had yeah. in his uh, IT two hundred. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So you can easily align the wheel in the field uh, and a quick detach rear wheel. Um, all this to try and, you know, get it ready for the Baja that they were going to, you know, focus on. Um, 
and they had a pressurized oiling system, which was not, you know, was not everywhere. A lot of them weren't pressurized. Um, and the Kickstarter actually turned the primary gear. So you could start it in gear. Hmm. Um, and I know my, my, even my 84, I don't think kicks on the primary. Um, Most everything kicks on the, uh, on the uh, main shaft of the transmission. Yeah. So this was, you know, so you could start it in gear and, you know, I've, I've seen enough videos of the early to mid two thousands lately uh, to think, you know, some of these guys would have really appreciated being able to pick up their bike and just start it in first, not have to find neutral. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the rear suspension, I, I've, I've mentioned anyone who knows this bike knows uh, it had forks on the front and forks on the back. Um, they're not the only one to have done this. Boltaco and Suzuki had done it here and there, uh, but it ran shows in the front and KYBs in the back. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, since this was all pretty much pulled together from a lot of different sources, the front hub was off of a Yamaha. The handlebars were KNNs. Uh, it had Magura controls, uh, sun rims, and uh, Buchanan spokes. So, you know, instead of trying to build everything from scratch, they did the smart thing mm-hmm. and they pulled from, you know, competent sources throughout the uh throughout the sport and you know only designed and built what they had to uh to try and keep you know costs down and they did get uh you know some some people were out there racing them uh they had uh you're gonna have to help me with some of these names if you know them but they had uh larry uh roisler rosler rosler and bruce uh ogulev Ogilvy, Bruce Ogilvy. Those are desert. Ogilvy. Uh, Ogilvy's a desert guy, and Rosler was a kind of an off-road, you know. He did do Baja, but he also did Enduros and stuff. Yeah, and this bike won the 1975 Baja 500 in its class. Really? Uh, and in 1978, they updated it, and they had racers like Marty Tripes. Yep. Uh, Rich uh, Elderstite. Eierstadt. Eierstadt. Uh, and Rex, uh, Rex Staten. Rex Staten. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, they raced motocross until 1979 when, when they finally had to, to stop because the biggest problem, and I think it's why we won't see them back in the sport is Harley Davidson dealers didn't want to stock a non-American bike because it was Italian. Even the, even the SX250 was considered an Italian bike. Because it was still built. It, it was not built in America. It was an Aramachi bike. Didn't really... It was built, and all, almost all the parts were Italian. Oh, I did not know that. Other than, you know, having that Japanese front uh, hub and, and, you know, stuff like that didn't help. Um, but between that, so they didn't want to stalk them. They didn't, you know, they didn't get the word out. And uh, one guy who was a, a dealer at the time ended up saying, you know, Harley riders didn't want to ride dirt bikes and dirt bikers weren't going to come over to a Harley dealership and buy one. You know, they had their brands and it wasn't Harley. And so they only made 14,000 between 1973 and 1978. That's it. Well, 14,000 is not bad though when you're breaking into a market. 
Yeah, but I mean, at this point, How you know, any happen? one of those Japanese brands was putting that much out in a couple of months. Yeah. But how many Altas did they make? 1,200? Hmm. Yeah, but they were they were uh, backed up with orders. Yeah, but uh, it's interesting. They definitely put some decent numbers out there. I think that the, the market and society back in the days, you're probably right about the fact that they, you know, didn't want to have not American stuff because, you know, in the 70s, it was Jap junk. You know, they call it Jap junk, you know, and European junk and that kind of stuff. And that was kind of how it was. It was perceived, and maybe that does kind of line up thinking way back in those days as to why those dealers didn't want to have them. <clears throat> the United States was getting defensive because, you know, we had the little Datsuns and Toyotas coming over here and taking over, and so they were kind of defensive. So I guess that kind of makes some sense. But and in- the, bike, the bike was too heavy, to be quite honest. It was 275 pounds. Oh, wow. That's yeah. substantially more than the DT1. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the DT1 was still pretty heavy. It was probably 260. But that was about 250, but yeah, even that, that that was a portlier one on its own. But the CR50 um, was 214. <laughs> yeah, you really can't compete against that uh, 60 pounds, but yeah. everyone said that the engine was good, the frame was bad, yeah, you know, it wasn't super reliable, and it just couldn't compete with even the MT-250, or much less the Elsinore. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Harley losing money daily, the market was going away from cruisers currently, um, and they're not tapping the next generation. They're looking for sales elsewhere, and I don't think it's going to be in dirt bikes. But on the other hand, they invested in Alta, which we mentioned earlier, Alta, in 2018, but then they pulled the funding Um but now they've bought Stasic, which is an electric balance bike company. Uh, they bought them last year in 2019. And now they're actually doing some marketing for that by setting up races at some of these Supercross rounds. So, you know, I wonder if we're going to see, you know, Harley Davidson try to break back into this market. You know, if, if they can't rely on their old market, you know, I wonder if we'll ever see them back in the uh, dirt side of things. It's been interesting to see, you know, when you think back, <clears throat> I guess really in in my lifetime anyway, Harley Davidson was the first attempt at that. You know, breaking in, they almost made it. And it didn't work. And then the next thing you got is Cannondale. Cannondale, they had a good bike. They had uh, Keith Johnson racing him at the Nationals. The bike had the speed. I guess um, I read something today that it said that the warranty costs on the bikes is what killed them. But, you know, they're so close. And then it pulls back. And then you have Alta, so close, super competitive motorcycle, fun to ride. Boom, it doesn't quite make it. It's just, it's tough to watch. These guys get so close. And then some one reason or another, they have to pull back. The only person who's made it work was KTM was able to remount an offensive and go from in the early 2000s. They were, ah, look, Langston's bike broke in half to winning 
everything around the world for a couple of years. But, you know, but those guys have been around for, for a long time. I didn't want to try to say the guy's name, Chuck and Pulse or something like that. He's been around a long time <clears throat> selling motorcycles. He sold motorcycles in the, in the early 70s that were Pentons. They, they made the motorcycles. Uh, pretty sure Pooks were the same thing. Um, and they just held held in there, mainly focused on Europe. But then, you know, the day came, they hired Roger DeCoster and said, nope, time to go big or go home. And they've not only done well in, in world motocross and off-road, but now they're getting into MotoGP. They're just mm-hmm. more established. You know, Harley's should have been established enough to make the dirt bike thing work. Mm-hmm. I think the societal thing of the 70s and the quote Jap junk time is why that didn't work. But, you know, KTM now, they're big enough and organized enough that, and now I think they're profitable enough. They, you know, I guarantee you back when they hired Roger DeCoster, when they had still had the white KTMs before they hired DeCoster, <clears throat> they weren't making tons of money. But I think that their investment has paid off. What do you think about all this stuff, Dave? You've been a bit quiet over there. Well, you guys, while I'm talking all this history, I got stuck on something I've been Googling the whole time. I was trying to, I was thinking of teams and which, when, um, I, I don't know exactly if it's always been this way, but when the manufacturers really started trying to buy championships by buying, you know, winners. And uh, of course we had Honda, I think went nuts with the idea for a couple decades. And, yep. and then, um, but I was trying to remember the year that Yamaha had, uh, there was this ad that they put out, and I remember it from the cycle news uh, when it was a you know, newspaper style. It was the team Yamaha with McGrath, Winham, Henry, and I can't remember the fourth person. I think it might have been Lusk. I mean, um, not Lusk. Um, Oh, shoot, I can't remember who. But they, they were all in Western attire. They looked like cowboys. Mm-hmm. And then that. right after, you remember that? I love that. And I had it hanging in my bedroom for a long time. And uh, I missed that picture. But, you know, then 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 Winham switched, I think, to Yamaha or Suzuki. Uh, Yamaha. Uh, to Honda. I think he switched to Honda right after they released the ad and they pulled the ad. <laughs> Winham went to Suzuki then. Um, Suzuki, yeah. Yeah, he was Yamaha, then he did Suzuki for like a year, and then he retired. And how he ended up on yeah. Honda was he, when he was retired, he just bought a, a 03 CRF 450 and just rode it for fun. Mm. Um, but there, but you, going back further, it was 1978 when Yamaha, <clears throat> they had Brock Lover, Rick yep. and Bob Hanna. And they all won one one. They won one one everything. And that was when Yamaha yep. was full all in as a team to win to win everything. That was the first of anybody that won everything. You know, going back before, you know, you had Gary Jones, he won the two fifty championship four years in a row, each year on a different bike. Mm. Um, it was always it was always different. Marty Smith was kind of a haunt. He stayed with Hondas all the time. He won the 125s, but, you know, then he would win a 250 or whatever, or, a, or and then him and Hannah raced 500 stuff together. But 
Yamaha was the first one to really put together a kind of a juggernaut that took all of them hmm. in 78. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like that's really when the money started kicking in, right? When the manufacturers started to make a point of it to, to find the, the winners and, and build yep. a race team. Yep, yep. Yep, I'd say 76, 77, yep. 78 was when that, when everybody went all in. You know, you, mm. Kawasaki had Jimmy Weiner and uh, Brad Lackey, but they had him in Europe. Um, I mean, they, they were all in trying to win stuff, and they had guys riding 125s, but, um, but Yamaha was the most all in at mm. that time. Suzuki was more focused on world champion stuff than ship stuff. Before that, they had Roger DeCoster, Joel Robert uh, racing Suzuki's and winning world championships because, you know, Americans, ah, that was a second-rate series. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, that's how uh, it but, yeah, that's when I think about it, David, is uh, the one Yamaha won 125, 250, uh, 500 all um, that yeah, one twenty five, two fifty, five hundred altogether. Um, that was when I saw that yeah, the factories are all in on this thing. Mm. And it wasn't until eighty two that Honda really got fully into it. You know, they had they had O'Mara, they had Hanson. Um, can't remember who all they had then at that time, but um, that's when they started winning. Of course, then it went into the Rick Johnson, Bob Hanna, the Jeff Stanton era where they won a lot, but there were not that Yamaha and Kawasaki and Suzuki weren't all in at the same time. That's when the money really came in. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. think the riders started making real money until Ricky Carmichael. Really? Well, you hold it. No, McGrath was making money. I think he made money, but I think that Carmichael made 10 times as much. Okay. All right. <clears throat> Karma, well, uh, McGrath, you know, I don't know. He, I don't know if he ever made a million dollars in a year. He'd be chuckling if he listened to this. But, <laughs> but you know, Ricky probably was the first one to make a million, and you know, and on from there. Um, <clears throat> um, I know Chad Reed. I read at one time where he was a second. He had made the second most money of any Australian, only to was like as Greg Norman was the golfer. And they had uh, they had Chad Reed at thirty five million. Wow, he's probably chuckling at this if he listens. <laughs> you yeah, know, I, yeah, I used to have that money, and then I started a race team. Yeah. <laughs> or, well, I remember they were listing the uh, first place uh, prize money at a hundred thousand dollars, and that was recently. And I was thinking, God, that's not very much money for. Yeah. for that race but maybe maybe that's just what it can afford with the the crowd size it's just not quite a big enough crowd to afford more than that but i know they get their big bucks from the ad from their um sponsors and the oh, manufacturer stuff. yeah yeah the purse the purse is not the big money the purse no. is nice for the top like five yeah but it becomes nothing very quickly like i think that the race winner gets a hundred thousand but i think by the time you get to 10th it's like five grand yeah yeah I, I remember when uh, Chad started his 2-2 Motorsports, um, they had, of course, a million interviews with him when he did that. And one of the interviews, he mentioned that his investments made more money than he ever made in a year from uh, racing Supercross. And I was 
pretty shocked by that. And that because that was still when he was in the meat of his his racing. So I, it's it's crazy to think that it doesn't pay as much as you can make in investments. But maybe you had really good investments. But our interview with Jeremy McGrath, and he was talking about they were talking about whether the Supercross series this year would be able to continue or not, and he said that. If uh, if they don't, if they end it now, he said that pass that Eli Tomac did on Ken Roxon at Daytona, he says that was probably worth a couple of million dollars. Because <laughs> he won't win the championship. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, isn't, that, isn't that crazy? Now, I also remember Chad Reed, remember when he rode Suzuki for outdoor, and did the outdoor series for Suzuki? Paid for his own. Took yep. no salary, but he says, but I want a bonus. That bonus was a million dollars. Okay. All right. Yeah, which barely makes it worth it. <laughs> oh, yeah, barely. <laughs> I mean, I can't, because I'm sure then he pays his driver and his mechanic and oh, yeah. everything else. I mean, you take that million dollars and you split it, you know, five, six, seven ways. And okay, you're coming out with a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you pay for your year and you, you a little bit in the bank, but man, uh, yeah. And for most people, it's a career that you can only have, especially at that top level, for ten years. Oh, I mean, yeah, five at that top level, five. Well, I mean, even including two fifties. Like, if we're talking from like where Justin Cooper is now to, you know, where uh, Cole Seeley was, like, yeah. That, that's a that's maybe a 10 year you know give or take you know some people it's much less but if you're lucky you've got 10 good solid factory making money years yeah but those 250 riders are they making even half of the premier class no, oh, no wow. they're not yeah no. so really you've got five years and that's only if you're at the top you're making that money and it's got to drop off like a like a like a logarithmic scale here i mean that thing's going to plummet it's exponential, right? You're yeah. going to go from from a million dollars a year to a hundred thousand dollars a year, probably by fifth place or sixth place. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, there's there's a lot of talk about how only the top ten, you know, in points can afford to mm-hmm. race, basically. So, mm-hmm. you know, and then the problem with, you know, well, you you know, you give these athletes that have to do the travel they have to pay for their bike they have to do all this stuff and you know if you're outside of the top 10 these 250 privateers are leaving with fifteen hundred dollars that doesn't pay for their gas to get to the next one like yeah they're all shooting for the whole shot so they can get an extra fifteen hundred yeah 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 i you know i i remember watching an interview with uh, wilson right after he got onto the 250 class and um you know he he had a house but it was you know I'm sure it was a rental, or maybe not, because he wasn't—he was in California at the time. But it, it was just a—you know—it was a house smaller than my house. <laughs> and I was thinking, yeah. You, the, so the 90% of all those riders are literally doing it because they love it. Yes. And and that is amazing. <laughs> to, to take those kinds of risks and to put yourself out there, you know, day after day for. Oh. Just enough, you know. Some of us are making more money just going to work every yeah. day. That's why they get pissed off when a guy slams them off the berm and they don't get yeah. through the heat. 
That's why the 125 last chance qualifier is so freaking awesome to watch. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's, yeah, they're just killing each other to get into that main. <laughs> and, you know, but there's also the, you know, you tell your kids when you're 50 years old, yeah, I used to race Supercross. I got there. I was on TV and on and on. You know, there's bragging rights, too. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. Oh, it's good stuff. Yeah. I, I, I'm still looking. I am going to find that picture, man. If I can find that, that, that magazine with that ad, I'm buying it. I don't, I don't know how much it'll cost me, but I really want that picture back. <laughs> that was one of my favorite pictures of all time was that particular one. I'm glad you guys had this conversation because right? I forgot about that picture till this, this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> it's all worth it right now. Oh, it's definitely worth it. If I can find it, especially. Hey, so you guys going to um, go after the digital remakes of Terra Firma series? I just saw that. Or one, two, and three? Or no, one through four. Five. One through four. You really? know, I really, I thought Still Roots rocked. Uh, I really loved Still Roots. Um, but Terra Firma, I didn't really get into, but I really want them again, though, just to find out if I, if there was, maybe I just wasn't into it enough at the time. I oh, think those. You want, I, ride, I, you want to ride down the stairs, through the living room, out through the window <laughs> in the back of the truck, don't you? Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> At somebody else's house. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh! Imagine how many houses they trashed. Oh jeez. I was sitting here thinking, I'm not sure if I've seen those, and then, Dad, you you recounted that, and I'm like, oh, I know I've been at you know, Dad's buddy's Rick's house. And doing other things and walking and a bunch of them are sitting around drinking beers, watching, watching this weird movie that's got dirt bikes in it. And I know that scene of him riding through and doing that, like that's iconic. I'm like, okay, now I remember being around while these movies were watched. Who doesn't remember walking up to a guy and going, dude, you got some serious problems to work out with yourself. Which one's that? (laughs) Which one is I that? I don't yet? know. I couldn't tell you which one it is. I do know it's Terra Firma, but that's where it ends. Seth Enslow when he just launched off the huge dune. Oh, yeah. Oh, Seth. And he walks up to him and tells him. Yep, I remember that. Crashes right into McGrath's practice bike. Yep. Now, now that was, that was um, yeah, Seth. Oh, and that was yeah, that's the other Seth. Right. When he hits the bottom of that huge frippin' what is a hundred foot drop on the sand dunes. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. and he's all tore up in his face there. Oh forgot about that. You got some serious problems to work out with yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think I think dad's gonna end up getting those. Hold it, that's terra firma? Yeah, that was one of the Okay, all Wait, right. No it, I, wasn't. no, it wasn't. That was Krusty Demons of Dirt. I thank you. Wrong. Yes, that was Krusty that's Demons. I was wondering. Yeah. Like, that sounds way like Seth Enslow is. That's Krusty. Krusty. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Is that guy still alive? Yes, he is actually. Um, I saw an interview with him about two years ago, and uh, he's got arthritis and stuff like that, but he's still a normal contributing uh, human being to society. Oh, be darned! He's still alive. Yeah, he's still all right. He, he, he's not like disabled or anything. Do I remember right that he did the straight the straight rhythm one year? Ooh, not that I recall. Not, okay, nope. all right. 
I remember one of the crazies did that, but I can't, maybe it was not Deegan. Well, Somebody. Pastrana is one of those, one of those. Yeah. yeah. He, he certainly was. Yeah. He did the backflip on the straight rhythm last year, wasn't it? With a 500 two stroke. Yeah. It's that was a, awesome. that was a years back. I mean, Josh Hill is definitely one of those. I mean, he, th- he lost his career doing oh, yeah, tricks out in the sand dunes. Like, um, Josh Hill. Yeah. What did I say? Yeah, you said Josh Hill. Okay. Oh, I was yeah, he, of Josh Hansen, but yeah. Yeah, was it – is Hill the one that actually broke his neck and just came back to racing? Who was Who was uh, that? He broke both of his legs when he oh, was – he was yeah, but yeah, he's supercross, but he came back last year for select rounds with the Yamaha factory team, and he yeah. actually did pretty well. Yes, yeah. and now he's now he's back, like very literally banging bars in the two fifties class. Yeah. yeah, I I thought I was so excited to see him back. I I really wish the season hadn't ended. I think he had a chance of doing doing more than he was. Didn't he? He crashed out of one race, so he's out of the points at this point, right? Yeah, but he yeah. he also started to fall back race oh, to he? race. Like he, I think he was getting tired. Hmm. Yeah, it might have been. I was I was excited to see him back. Oh, the first three rounds, uh, watching him, you know, not with the back markers, but up around top five, mixing it up was that was there was some Bowers energy to it. Yeah, yeah, there was good comparison. Hmm. Yeah, it was. You know, another thing about these movies that I was just thinking about, I if any song comes onto the radio that was on any of those tapes, I yeah. immediately think of motocross racing. It's because most of those songs, I, w- I didn't listen to a whole lot of, you know, well, anything really. So most of those songs that are on those I, I didn't relate to. So they really they're like solidified in my mind related to motocross now. And that one that they had, that was in Still Roots. I think it might have been the first song on the tape. I've watched that tape so many times. Uh, and they, they have one of the shots is of Jeff Emig in a party walking around with on a, a stilts dressed up like uh, Mr. America. Oh, yeah. And that, that particular song, and I, I won't even attempt to sing it, but every time I hear that song, I think of Jeff Emig on those stilts walking around in an America suit. <laughs> there's some there's some actually pretty good solidified uh, motocross-related stuff in my brain that I that kind of comes out at the weirdest moments. <laughs> I think that's a that's a common thing for for most people. Um, you know, I have that a little bit from those movies, but mostly. Growing up, I played a lot of motocross video games from Motocross Madness 1 mm. all the way up through, you know, current. Like last night, I was playing the new uh, Supercross uh, 3 oh, uh, you, on the you, Xbox One. Uh, you, <laughs> I, I, are you doing that online yet? I, I, I don't understand the question, of, of course. Well, I, I have it, but I've only done race by myself at home, and I, I only have... Uh, the first one that they did uh, that was titled Supercross here until three years ago, uh, which is good because that's Dungy on it. So I really like that one. Yeah, but okay. So Xbox One, Supercross, I really would love to do play somebody else. And by the way, that one, this is the hardest simulator that I have ever played. I don't know if you guys agree or not. 
But that that Supercross, there's something about it that Roger I hasn't played a video game since um, Halo, the original Halo, when I forced him to play that. How do you know? Uh, <laughs> You're right, Am I wrong? You're right, but how do you know? That? <laughs> That's hilarious. He's 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 out on the real bike. Uh, lucky lucky son of a gun. Um, uh, I played I played motocross madness against Roger a few times. Yeah, we did way uh, back in the day, huh? Way back in the day, yeah. Well, you probably did track editors back then too, yeah. Well, I don't remember doing that, but. <clears throat> That was, uh, we definitely did, a, I did a lot of track downloads, but I think with Roger and I, we pretty well raced just the standard tracks. I, yeah. And I can't even remember how we did that, Rog. I had to have brought my computer over to your house or something. And that rings a bell. I think we did it, did something like that. Maybe you were. Yeah, a little LAN party. Must have brought a, a little hub over or something or networked in somewhere there. Yeah, that was a, If geez. we're, we're going to digress, then we're going to digress because I have a very vivid memory that comes up every once in a while of you two at um, uh, my grandparents, David's parents' house in uh, outside of Bend, Oregon. And I remember, I remember the both of you getting on and playing a Duke Nukem track pack, like uh, Nuke It 1000 together. And you guys were so excited that you were on the same map uh, doing that. It's I forgot about Duke Nukem. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, man. I, I think those were fun, some of the funnest nights I can remember is playing oh, yeah. Duke Nukem with the family. Yeah, that was fun. I used to play that with the kids all the time. That was probably the last one I ever played with the kids was Duke Nukem. What are you waiting for, Christmas? What <laughs> <laughs> uh, was it? something in gum? John St. John's. John St. John's. Yep. What's what's that? John St. John. That's the name of the uh, of the voice actor. Oh no, kidding! Oh, really? No, no kidding. Remember, I also do a uh, since we're talking about all these all the shows. I also do a video game podcast on the same network. I I know all about that. Huh. Um, you know they finished Duke Nukem Forever, right? Yes, I have heard. Yeah, don't don't touch it. Oh, really? That's too bad. That's too bad. Don't touch it. Um, but no, it is it is a a tough simulator. Um, I play with almost all these assists off. I say almost because, um, you know, the joint breaks I still have to get used to, and I get I get too stressed. But I'm I'm getting reused to shifting again. That's another one that's, it's, um, it's another thing to throw in. But other than that, you know, realistic difficulty, realistic physics, you know, it's easier to get used to it all at the beginning than to, you know, try and work up to it for me. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we'll have to get on and play because I have the first and third uh, currently. Oh, okay. I just have the first and I'm, I don't, I still can, I used to, with Motocross Mattis, I, after playing it for so long, I could win all the time, which I really enjoyed. I no. have yet to win in uh, in this one, and that just I get I actually have to put it away after a couple hours because I get really mad, <laughs> and uh, yeah. so I, I and my thumbs hurt and my neck hurts, and <laughs> so I. Well, I'm I'm gonna date this podcast for your own edification, and uh, you say you're on Xbox One, right? Yep. Um, uh, Supercross three is currently on free play till the end of the fifth. Oh, so you can go, 
You can go download it right now and play it for free. Okay. Uh, until the fifth, and then it's also on sale for like uh, twenty bucks off or something. Yeah, yeah. So David, I got two days. Are you still there, David? Are you still? Yeah, there? I am here. Yeah. Well, I thought you were gone. Going to play that game. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. I have, I have something I need to do. <laughs> My wife wouldn't anyway. see me for two days. I'd be just like, you know, lights off in the den. <laughs> well, we'll we'll definitely have to play, and I'll I'll uh, I'll take a picture of the TV and improve it, and uh, yeah, throw it up on on the Instagram because that that'll be fun. Little bit of cross play there. It'll be like uh, the picture that they got of me at the. Uh, I don't remember which event that was out out there by uh, the dust event with the the gravel motocross track, Raj where there's the picture of me picking my bike out of two, you know, four inches of talcum powder. <laughs> it's like me fell over underneath my bike. Anyway, that'll be what it will be like when you take a picture of me on that track uh, on the motocross thing. <laughs> They've stuck under his bike in the mud. So, so what, what does everyone do in the off season? Because I know Roger goes to California for the most part. Um, and then for me, I, I, uh, I play a lot of motocross video games to try and, you know, eat up the, you know, the Christmas area, you know, what, what else do you kind of do moto related in the off season, you know, to, there's only so much racing that happens. Uh, so what else, what else do you do moto related in your free time? I spend an awful lot of time looking at old races on YouTube. Uh, that's probably the one thing I do. I actually like to go back and watch just the mains of an entire year from like, you know, 2002 and um, the, the year that uh, the McGrath lost, you know, his, his role. Um, I, I like to see when Ricky, you know, the first year when Ricky was a rookie and he kept getting hurt. For some reason, I really like watching that year. Um, but I, I really, I like doing that going back because I try to remember fill in the pieces that I had forgotten about, like some of the second, third and fourth place finishes that, um, that, you know, that were amazing to see people come back from the back that I forgot about. I like to watch James Stewart because freaking man is a miracle maker on, on racetracks. And uh, so it's fun to watch Stewart because I kind of miss him a bit. Um, that's what I do. I kind of revisit history as much as I can, which is why I really get disappointed when I come across those really grainy recordings. <laughs> hmm. I watched a race the other day, and I'm trying to think of it was Rick, it was uh, James Stewart and Ryan Dungey at a race oh. on just the other day. <clears throat> Stewart came from way back. And you could see it was interesting to watch the almost desperation riding that James Stewart was doing, and of course Dungy. This was in 2010. Anaheim won 2010. Oh, oh okay. <clears throat> and uh, Dungy's rookie championship year. Rookie championship year, and 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 uh, Stewart's riding the number one plate on the Yamaha, and he caught Dungy just like I say. It was interesting to watch. Dungy was just riding smooth, like he always ended up doing and and uh stewart was just like off the hook i mean he was really <laughs> taking a lot of risks and stuff like that but like say that you missed james for that because i mean talk about 
just send it and just go fast and kind of tunnel visioning, <clears throat> watching him catch Dungy. And he caught Dungy and he passed him and just boom, disappeared. <clears throat> but it was kind of too far from the end of the race because maybe two laps later, you, you could watch James and that, that same desperation send it was gone. I don't know whether it was mm. <clears throat> lack of concentration, whether he got tired or whatever it was. And pretty soon here comes Dungy back and he catches back up to him. But problem was that I had to, somebody, something interrupted me. I, I was at work and I had to go answer a question or whatever. I didn't get to see whether Dungy got around him or not. <laughs> so, so you still don't remember what happened at A1 in 2010, huh? But it was neat to watch the, the two different styles because when 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 Dungey was catching Stewart after mm-hmm. after a couple laps, then as far as much as Dungey could do, he was in a push it take chances mode, which you don't see very often. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's his first race on a 450, uh, mm. Supercross race on a 450. But it was, mm. it was you could see just the, the the I guess it's the mental game that they were having to play mm-hmm. to run at that level. No one was even near those two guys. The third place was way off the off the the map there. That was Wyndham. Um, so, David, should should we should we tell him what happened, or should we just make him wait? Randy, obviously, you have it in front of you. I want to know. <laughs> you go what ahead because I can't do it off the top of my head. I think. What do you Stuart think? Ended, I think Stewart ended up winning. He did. He 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 ended up holding on uh, to the position. <clears throat> okay, that makes sense because I'm sure that once Dungey got there and started giving him a wheel, he was going to fight back. But that was when I had to walk away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, and it was Stuart Dungey and then Wyndham uh, rounded out the podium, and then Short and Villapoto. You know, there was it was just you know how how it went, and like you said, maybe it was too soon, but it seems like it was just just enough to to hold on for the win. But two completely different riding styles, and yeah. that's. That, that's what's fun to watch is see that yeah. and to watch how how Stewart was absolutely pushing it. I mean, you can watch races today where you know Tomac is off the hook, and yeah. I gotta say, there's actually some some comparison to that when 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 Tomac was going after Rocks at Daytona, there was a lot of the same thing going on where you know most of the time when these guys are doing Supercross, they they'll you know, they'll preload and they'll jump and they'll land perfectly on the backside of stuff all the time. But when you see them just just preload as hard as they can and case the quad instead of perfectly landing the triple, you know, that was the kind of stuff Stewart was doing in that 2010 race. And uh, sometimes, sometimes you catch the guy in front of you and sometimes you catch a ride to the hospital. Well, and that was Stewart, win or, win or crash. Um Tomac on the Checkers other hand, he gets away with it without crashing. He, when he makes his mistakes, it's usually because he's back in the pack. You know, sometimes he'll do it up front, but uh, for the most part, when he makes those mistakes, Tomac makes the mistakes, he's back in the pack. Uh-huh. And you're like, oh, he isn't going to win it this time. Well, like, uh-huh. <clears throat> but he did. You know, you made me. 
you may remember another uh, Stuart um, Dungey one, and this is one where I think they actually were both writing kind of at the same level. Um, it was Texas uh, Outdoors Motocross. Uh, I think it was 2012. Um, so I think that'd be the, not Houston. Where's the Freestone? With yeah, Freestone. Yeah. And uh, it's not the year that Dungey um, ran out of fuel. It's uh, I think it's the year before that and he chased Stewart around that track for so many laps in that heat like right on him the entire time and that was one of the funnest motocross races ever to watch wow. nobody was close to those guys and I, I remembered watching that one and thinking that that Dungey had actually kind of matched Stewart a little bit in his skill but mm -hmm. um, but I don't know uh, yeah, those were those were good years when the Chad was hurt, and then of course Villapoto was hurt, and so those two seemed to finally, you know, race each other a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was that was some fun races. But you're right. Uh, when 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 Stewart decided to go bonkers crazy, Dungey was never there. Yeah. <laughs> he, there was there was a big difference in in speed yeah. at that point. Yeah, Dungey would not do that. No, no, he didn't. He would always stay consistent, you know, all through his career. He would, it, yep. was, it was, he would, he would race the clock, you know, if his, what his lap times were, it was how he raced. He tr tried to not, you know, step with Villapoto. He would, he would get emotional with Villapoto, but for the most part, he didn't do it that much. Nope. Well, I mean, we all know that Villapoto wasn't uh, Dungy's main, main source of, of stress. That was always J Law. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. him and, and Alessi, but yeah, yeah, Alessi, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but he said he said that Alessi he would he would try a little harder. But he said the only person that ever got into his head, he said Villapoto, you know, um, even Tomac at the end. This is kind of when when the question was asked. They said, you know, is Tomac in your head? He said, you know. He's in my head the same way that Mike was growing up, you know, Mike Alessi and, you know, Villapoto when, you know, when I couldn't quite get him those new, those years. But he said, no one's really rattled me um, like like Jason Lawrence did. Mm -hmm. That was the one guy who, who really and, you know, he's very open about that. That was that was the one guy that would get him. He's like, yeah, I'd get emotional. And he's like, he would beat me mentally. He said, and I. You know, I don't let that happen. I always try and ride my own race. Don't let someone beat me mentally anymore. He said that, you know, that's why he was so consistent. He just rode his own race. So wasn't it J-Law that uh, Villapoto wheelie his bike into on that one corner? I think it was at Washougal. That was a where, practice where, race in California. That was at Hangtown. Okay. Okay. It was a practice. It was during practice at Hangtown, yeah. Okay, uh, that's one of the most. It's got to be one of the most famous YouTube videos yeah. ever for motocrosses. Yeah. <laughs> that that is uh, that was those two. I'd forgotten yeah. about that till you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, man. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, you get get your blood boiling from time to time. Mm -hmm. It does. But that's what I, I do. I like going back and reliving some of this stuff. And I do try to, I could, my, I'm not really good at remembering, correlating <laughs> a lot of stuff. I don't remember a lot of things, and I, but I like to. So it's, it's, 
I like to go back and just try to revisit all these races and put as much as I can into my short-term memory because it never seems to get into my long-term memory. But Well, that's even better. That means you can go back and watch. Yes. Like, I'm sure Roger watched that that race, you know, A1 in its entirety, but now he's able to go back and watch it again and go, oh, well, did Dungey catch him or not? Like, that's, yeah. Yeah. that's fun. It might as well be a brand new race if yeah. you don't remember. Like, yeah. yeah. And I watch him differently. Then I, I don't know, I guess I've always kind of watched the, the style and try to figure out what these guys are thinking when they're racing, you know. Mm. But if you know the style someone's going to have five or ten years down mm. the road, you know, oh, well, it's interesting to watch them ride this way when I know how their style is going to evolve yeah. later down the road. And maybe we, I can kind of see why it changes. Well, there was definitely a lot of comparisons, but I don't remember. I think the only time I remembered seeing dungy pushed that hard besides that time was there was a race i want to say it was indianapolis it was later in the season between um dungy and roxham hmm. these guys it was the last maybe five laps of a supercross race and they were they were playing chess but Man, they were really trying to one up each other, and they would pass and pass and pass and pass, and and it was really amazing. I do believe that Roxon in the end won that race. Uh, that's when Roxon was on the Suzuki and Dungey was on the KTM. But that okay. was a super intense race where both of those guys did stuff that they wouldn't normally do. However. Huh. They raced each other completely clean. Huh. Um, so it was super technically good, but oh, and they're... they had to get, no one made a mistake. And no, and they're both really very technically uh, per, perfectionists and everything that yeah. they do on putting their bike in the same place every yeah. single time and yeah. never missing mm-hmm. a mark. And yeah, that would be an issue. I have to go look for that one. Hmm. Yeah, so that was 2016, um, and actually Dungy held off Roxon for oh, the win. Did hold him off? Okay, yeah, uh, that was a. You'll have to go watch that battle because that's amazing. Which round was yeah. that? It was it was Indianapolis in 2016. Okay. It was okay. Indianapolis. Okay. Yep. It was, and it was, but it was close. Even to the end, it was 1.7 seconds. Yeah, huh. it was. But they had battled good for the last several laps. It was amazing. Uh, that's cool. Without making mistakes. Yeah. Roxon said, ultimately, I wish the race had kept going another five laps. The track was really tough out there. It was good to race all the way. I passed him, but made a mistake towards the finish, and he got me back. Mm-hmm. So he thinks he still had it, but I'm, I'm sure both sides yeah. would have said uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in Indianapolis, that's hard packed slick stuff right blue groove i think usually too so i that really probably lends itself good to the perfectionist style of those two guys yeah, yeah. and by by then uh Dungy had a pretty strong points lead on rocks and like about 50 points so oh, wow yeah mm-hmm. but that's that's the fun you can go back and watch you know all these old races with a you know, completely fresh, fresh yep. slate. Cause even though we just spoiled a few for everyone, there's so many more, <laughs> yeah. just pick one. And you know, there's going to be something to watch. I'm yeah. watching the last two laps of 
2010 round one right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the the uh, Dungey and yeah, Stuart. yeah, to see to see just how close Dungey gets to. Yeah, yeah he was right back up, sticking a wheel in on him when I had to walk away. <laughs> Doggone, work keeps interrupting. Hey, speaking of work, how are your guys' jobs going right now? I'm a programmer, so what do you know? I get to work from home like I do half the time anyway. You know, so I'm 100% working from home right now, and I used to do that all the time, so I'm like, I'm living my life the way I like it. What about you guys? Are you both going to the shop? I mean, what's going on? Yep, but we're busy. Okay. We're busy. I work every day. I don't, basically, we don't go out to dinner or mess around any. We go to work and we go home. We go to work and we go home. That's that's all we're doing. So our life's not told, not really changed a lot. Yeah, the business I work for, we are a uh, uh, a sub subcontractor for a uh, for many many companies that do big government work, like big deal government work. So we had. Um, I think they said 18 letters sent in on our behalf that we needed to stay open. Um, so yeah, we were very much, uh, necessary, um, uh, mm-hmm, construction, mm-hmm. uh, you know, manufacturing job. So we're, everyone's up and going, just everyone's giving each other a little bit of extra space in the hallway, sort of a yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, business, yeah. business is still stable. You guys haven't experienced a slowdown or anything yet? Not at all. Cool. Nope. It's been, been held about the same here. We, you know, some customers have gone quiet and others have ramped up. So, okay. Um, so it doesn't mean we get any more free time. No, <laughs> no, no more free time. Nope. Not like you get a makeup with dirt biking, but so, okay. Who's going to go, uh, if this thing is still, you know, work at home stuff, uh, now that the more outdoor season is starting to become available to us, I guess we got what another month before the the upper trails start opening up, right, Raj? Uh, I guess maybe, McCubbins. Right? McCubbins last weekend. McCubbins probably would have been open. Uh, you know what? I've done this before with you, where you say that, and we go up there and we're riding in three feet of snow. <laughs> so I don't believe you. <laughs> and, and nowadays it's closed till I believe it's either March uh, March thirty first or April thirty first. I forget, but I also went up there and they were they were closed. April. 3rd. Um, so you got to be careful about McCubbin's Gulch. Yeah. Well, it on a regular year. Uh, it opens on the 1st of April. Okay. Okay. 1st of April. So it would just now be opening. Yeah. So you guys, Texas is closed. Like everything. It's mostly tracks around here and they're all, they're all closed for safety. Okay. I was wondering about that. Cause I mean, it's, I don't know. Is it a state park there at the Gulch? No. Um, I know that that's forest. They talked about stuff this week as far as, so Umqua National Forest <clears throat> closed, completely closed their forest, completely. You can't even go in it at all. Okay. And they were, pushing, they were pushing Portland to close all the rest of the national forests. But at this point, they haven't because they're like the people in the National Forest Service are saying, hey, you know, if you want separation, there's really no better place to go. That's, that would be my thought, you know, don't, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the park rangers going out there, 
you know, if you have a group of more than, you know, 15 to 20 people around a campfire, it's like, Hey guys, yeah. well, you're going to need to split this up amongst yeah. two fires. Like yeah. I, like I realize that you are probably not going to get each other, but the whole thing is you can't have that everywhere. So, right. Right. And, right. but when you're actually riding, if you just show up and you put your gear on, like, and you go ride and then you go back and there's like four of you, I, I think that's, a perfect way of, yeah, you know, I don't feel like they would stop you if you just had three or four guys and you wanted to go for a ride. I don't think they would stop you. If you had mm -hmm. 20 guys, they would stop you. Yeah. Stop, stopping. uh, like, yeah, exactly. Uh, a group. Yeah. yeah. I wondered about that. I'm kind of, you know, trying to figure out the social responsible part here. And it just seems to me, you're right. Two or three people out there on the trail yeah. is not going to be, mm -hmm. a, a really a risk, but I don't know. They just canceled a uh, a trail competition uh, out in Central Oregon that Roger and you know his associates were gonna go do. It's a forty or eighty mile, depending on how many loops you do. But that's two hundred and some people plus the organizers, 300. maybe three hundred. Yeah. Um, oh, you're talking yeah, about they, China Hat? Yes. They can. Oh, yeah. of course they canceled it. Yeah. Yeah. So they did cancel that. Um, and that's, that, that's responsible. You know, you shouldn't have that many people yeah. all right next to each other. Not right now. It's just yeah. not worth it. Yeah. Um, but I think if you go out there and you, I mean, you're already parking, you know, 75 feet from the nearest truck, mm -hmm. you know, on any other given weekend mm -hmm. and, you know, you keep your group of, you know, three to five people offering your corner and, you know, just be sure to, you know, have wipes to clean your hands after you use the, uh, the commode, you know, yep. and you'll be fine, which you should do anyway. I mean, let's be honest, but <laughs> I, I think motocross can be a safe way, you know, close the tracks. I understand that you can't have yeah. hundreds of people mm -hmm. at the same track using all the same, uh, facilities, but yeah, yeah, the tracks, I think that's an important way to give an outlet to people. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, and you're like, oh, you can still go out and do something. You don't have to get together in a, in a big party, but you can still go do uh -huh. something. I remember the going this time of the year with Roger um, and maybe a couple others. Randy, I don't remember if you and I ever went up this early in the year, but there's like nobody there this time of the year. You go up yeah, there in, yeah. in late, right. mid or late April, there's literally you're the only person on the trail. So, yeah, yeah. yeah just it just I hopefully those of us who are going to get an opportunity to go riding uh, will go do it and, and hopefully it's okay. But I'm, I am trying to be conscious of what everybody else is deciding to do and try to not violate the order of things. <laughs> my, my, my next trail ride I'm, I, that I really, that is planned that hopefully we don't have to move is going to be China hat on the weekend of the May 16th and 17th. You know, there's going to be probably 10 or 15 guys that want to go do this. David, you went with us one time out there with the, the Mark Evans Mother's Day ride. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's when they had the the map of the area, that huge yeah. printed map on the yeah. side of the trailer. Yeah, yeah. and they yeah. still have it. They still that's hang awesome. that up every year. They did move it to the weekend after Mother's Day. Um, okay. Just so people don't get in so much trouble for going. <laughs> <But> <laughs> that's, that's probably that's smart. 
that's the next like organized ride that we're planning on having a lot of people at. That's a month and a half from now. I hope we can do that. You know, otherwise mm-hmm. it's going to be I'm going to ride in my back field and you know just play that way until we can change stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep, I hope we get back to it. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure we will soon enough. Yes, we will. And the races are going to start in uh, mid June, uh, outdoors. Outdoor. Hopefully, um, they do have uh, GNCC starting uh, mid April, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think two weekends from now is when they're hoping to do uh, the next one, seventeenth uh, or eighteenth. Um, so hopefully if that, if that goes well, um, I still don't think we'll see any supercross until after outdoors. Yeah. I, I agree uh, with you on that. It's too short a notice to sell seats yeah. is the big thing. True. I didn't even think about that, but I just uh, think they're going to settle in and let that happen. And if things get pushed back further, um, <clears throat> I read where, uh, Davy Combs said that they would, if they had to, they would shorten up the outdoor series. Oh. I appreciate and and they did they did a an interview with um the guy from Feld um and they are working very closely together because I think they realize that they need each other for the sport to stay healthy. I don't think Supercross could survive without outdoors uh, because that's more people watch Supercross but more people who ride watch outdoors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's really your base. And so though most of your watchers are in Supercross and that's important, mm-hmm. um, I think without outdoors, the sport would suffer at, at a foundational level. So Big time. I, I think Feld has kind of wised up to that, mm-hmm. um, maybe because they're not trying to run a literal circus anymore. Um, <laughs> they, have, they have more time to focus on, on this. Um, so yeah, I I think they're gonna help each other out and try and get the racing done correctly. Because another thing, so many of the riders are already riding outdoors. Yeah. Well, he I, then said, "Oh, now yeah. we're gonna throw two supercrosses at you, yeah. even though you're ready for outdoors. Then you need to switch to outdoors, then back to indoors, and then two months off back to indoors." I I, I really hope that I'll be honest with you. If they canceled this year's supercross, I would actually feel better about it. I just think that you're prolonging the impact of it by trying to continuously figure out how to squeeze it all together and then start yeah. next year. Yeah. I just, I hate to say it. I, I wish Tomac had a chance, but really let's have a good supercross season. Let's, I mean, outdoor season, let's take a break. Like we need to between the two and everybody knows all the writers complain about how short of a break it is every year Yeah. between the two seasons. I just, yeah. I think shoving it all together at the end of the year is a bad call. Big picture, but, you're probably right on that. Um, it would be interesting to see if maybe they would do like a two-race sprint, you know. I would like to see. I was going to say a three-race. I think I might have posited this. I don't know if it was on mic or off, but I would like to see a chase. Mm. This is a great year to get. There's already going to well, be an asterisk on the season. Might as well say, hey, when we come back racing in October, top 10 guys are are qualified. One point separates each guy. It's a chase format. Let's do this. Well, they they only need one more race to officially give 
um, Tomac a title if he wins the last race. If he's point, if he's got the points lead at the end of the next race, he's won ten out of nineteen, and that's all he needs. Or ten out of seventeen. Yeah, that's all he needs. So I just think one, one more race. Um, but if but if Roxon wins and Tomac gets second, it's tied. Then what? <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, that's too bad. <laughs> then, you, then you go by wins and you, ch- you choose the championship based on who has more wins. Like, yeah. that's a huge asterisk it's there, too. Wow. So it's tough. We'll see what happens, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see. I, I can't, I, I feel for the manufacturers and for the organizers, AMA, everybody. I mean, Feld, everybody's got to just put that going. Oh, my God. No, there's no good decision at this point, yeah. you know? Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. There is no right decision. It's Absolutely. just see what you can do. Someone's going to be mad either way. Yeah, yeah somebody's going to be very mad either way. Yes. Yeah. I, I saw a little snippet of the of the interview that uh, <clears throat> we did with Tomac. He did one with Roxon tonight, but I haven't got to see it yet. Where Tomac said, "No, man, I w- I'd rather have a couple series. I'd just soon do the whole series." But you know, mm. it's interesting to hear him say that. You know, because he goes, "But you could be the championship." He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "So they tell me in the middle of September that I'm the champion." He says that's kind of a buzzkill. He says, "I'm not in a big stadium. We didn't win it at all." Mm. You know, and mm. he's right. He's got mm. a point. As epic as a season ender that that race would have been. Um, you know, if we would have known that was the last last race of the season, oh, like that was I think that, hugely epic. Yeah, I think that, that Roxon would have pushed a little harder. Whether he would have won or not, I don't know, because he did push hard once he got past. But I yeah, think- but if but if that's the way it would have ended, and we knew it was the last race, and you know everyone was given all they got, somebody that's... would have crashed in that battle. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Um... <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll keep our ears to the ground. Um, I'm going to go ahead and call it. Uh, We've gone a little bit over. So Um, thanks, uh, Roger and David, for coming back on. Um, I was worried we wouldn't have anything to talk about. (laughs) Well, always find something. (laughs) There's a lot, plenty of history to, to, to go on. We'll, we'll continue making these um, because it's fun. It is. Dave, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. It's uh, fun stuff. I pre- I I'm so sorry my schedule is so wacky these days, but uh, it it's going to start settling down at the end of the summer. So I'm going to be back on a new track here. Well, you're- well, we'll 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 keep working with with you and get you on whenever we can. And uh, there's some other people who are excited to uh, to get on and and fill in when they can. Also, so cool. don't worry about it too much. Yeah. Like it. Just enjoy it. Yep. Um, you guys have anything anything else before I uh, kind of close out with the admin? Any other thoughts? I'm good. I, I did talk to Mark tonight about coming on, and he says he wants to do it, but he can't, you know, just not able to put it together yet. Yep, scheduling. Well, we'll have him on uh, pretty soon. He's a dual sport uh, outdoor rider. He's, I think, the only one of us who would have ride in the rain knowingly. <laughs> yep and happily he does it with a smile on his yep. face so hopefully we can have mark on pretty soon shout out hey mark um so uh thank you for listening to loose spokes we are a part of the tiny dog podcast network uh you can contact us at tiny dog podcast network at outlook.com uh again ratings and reviews that's 
the biggest way to kind of get the word out. Um, those are always, uh, just huge for us. Um, and just, you know, word of mouth, tell your friends, uh, and you can reach us also on the Instagram page. Uh, that's loose spokes podcast. Um, putting more stuff out there. Uh, be sure to check out the other shows on the network. Um, if you're interested in automotive, uh, the aforementioned garage night every Thursday and the video game content, uh, check out just another side quest every other Thursday. And I will be mentioning, uh, at least briefly, uh, Supercross uh, three, um, this upcoming episode. So you can find out about all this stuff at tinydogpodcast.com. And we are working on a, uh, a YouTube channel currently. So that'll be launching pretty soon. And we'll have a, a channel for um, GoPros and, and the such from, uh, from our helmets. So uh, without any further delay from all of us here at the network, we uh, wish you a good night. Good night. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Loose Spokes podcast. A special thanks for Jahazer for the use of their song, The Last Ones, under the Attribution Share Alike license.